Welcome to Helping People Change. So, all right, well, uh, I know many of you took the How People Change class last quarter, and, and some of you are coming into this class. Uh, if you didn't take that class, no problem. You're not going to feel lost. You're not going to feel confused. Uh, this class builds on that, though, so uh, it, it's not a, a building that requires, again, having gone through that class, but it is helpful. Uh, we'll do, over the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, I think the first, apart from today's session, maybe session two, session three, we'll do, do a pretty big overview of the principles of uh, how people change. Uh, as we just consider how do we then get involved in helping others change. But the focus of this class is how do we take the principles of how people change and apply them in our relationships with others. And then with today's uh, session being more introductory. I had mentioned last uh, quarter that this class would follow a similar format in terms of we're using a curriculum. Uh, It's produced by CCEF, written by Paul Tripp, Uh, and Tim Lane uh, called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And it's based on Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, which has the subtitle, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. It's a wonderful, uh, helpful book. And so there's a a couple of things that I would just encourage you to consider that if you want to uh, go deeper than just coming and, and sitting uh, on a Sunday morning, if you want to do your own personal uh, study and, and development, uh, there's a couple of ways you could do that. Number one, you could get that book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp, and the, the flow of the book will follow the flow of the class, and you can pretty easily identify uh, the chapters as they correspond to the, the sessions of class. And you can just read along and you know get that reinforcement, uh, and then of course his own anecdotes and stories and and ways of explaining things, Uh, and you can do that. Or there's a study guide that goes with this curriculum that follows it week by week, which has, if you will, homework assignments. It's more like passages to look up, questions to answer of personal reflection. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, requiring that. I'm not expecting that. So uh, if, if you don't do that, you're not um, going to be missing out on anything in the class, but you could do that on your own if you choose to, and that's just another way of having reinforcement and thinking more deeply about the content of the class. Uh, one aspect that we had consistently last quarter was there was a video for each session of the class, and there are videos for this curriculum as well, uh, but I'm not sure yet if I'm going to use them. It might be a week-to-week kind of decision, so I'm not going to use today's video I'm just going to teach the same content, and then we'll see how we how we use that as we move forward. So I've not used this curriculum before. I had used the the how people change in the past, but this is the first time I've used this curriculum. So I'm just kind of figuring out week by week uh, how uh, how much I want to use you know the resources that they provide versus just teach the the content. But I will say, and I want you to know, I am heavily certainly for today. I'm heavily depending on the curriculum and following the. Uh, the key ideas, the principles, and passages. So um, if you think, wow, Pastor Gabe, that is so helpful, uh, don't think that I came up with it on my own. Know that I'm, I'm kind of really lifting the material from, from a curriculum and then just presenting that to you uh, from the Word of God. One of the things that I really appreciate about this curriculum is that it is so uh, Scripture-centered. It's not just, hey, here's some ideas <clears throat> on how to help people change and you know, um, you, then you have to learn these skills that you've, you wouldn't otherwise find in Scripture. No, this is a really biblically grounded 
uh, curriculum. And, uh, and so that's going to help us just to dig into Scripture. And, uh, and then as you continue to grow in your own walk with the Lord uh, and you read Scripture over the course of time, you'll have these things reinforced because you'll just be continuing to go to the source of uh, wisdom that God has given us that we'll walk through in this class. Now, the last class, we followed kind of a four-principle uh, uh, four outline uh, that was more or less characterized by four words. Does anybody remember that was in that class what those four words, what was the outline of the last class? Heat? Thorns? Thorns. Cross? Cross? Fruit. Fruit. Good. I don't know if you noticed the HTCF, but I put that there as a hint. <laughs> but good job. Heat, thorns, cross, fruit. Again, if you weren't in that class, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll either talk about that specifically or at least ex- explore the principles in the next couple of weeks. This class, and I'm just doing this right now just to put this in your brain. We're not going to spend any time on this, but the outline that we're going to follow once we get to the, the meat of the curriculum is no love Excuse me. Love, no, <laughs> speak, do. In fact, the reason I just messed that up is because for years, I, I read uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands 14, 15 years ago. And, uh, uh, and then over the years, you know, in the biblical counseling world, some of the key principles like love, no, speak, do get reinforced in different ways. But for years, I've always gone in my brain, no, love, speak, do. And then as I was preparing this week, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, love is first. <laughs> so love, no, speak, do. And you might be able to guess even what those mean. Love simply refers to the fact that when we love one another, that manifests itself in how we speak and minister to one another, right? That our mutual ministry is, is grounded in Christ's love for us and then our love for one another. Speak refers to the fact that we have to speak the truth in love to one another. Love, no. No, I skipped no. (laughs) You can tell I'm an expert. Uh, No refers to the fact that we need to know a person. So one of the first steps that we ought to take when we're seeking to minister to someone is to know them, to, to not just know about them, to not just know their problem, but to know them, uh, to understand them. That's what Christ has done for us, right? He's, he's known us. Of course, he's God. He knows everything. But he's invested himself, if you will, in, in knowing us personally. Uh, and then comes the speaking of speaking the truth in love into another person's life based on our knowledge of them uh, and the details of the this, this situation. And then do is just the practical uh, ministry that we engage with with one another, that we don't simply help people change by speaking into their life and going away, but we actually get engaged and involved uh, in uh, their lives. Uh, in, uh, love looks more like more than just speaking. It, it, it's manifested in action. And so love, no, speak, do. We'll just work through that over the course of this uh, class in the next 13 weeks or so. Uh, and so I just bring that up so that that gets in your mind and Hopefully by the end of this class, we will all be able to say love, no, speak, do without um, rearranging them or skipping them. Okay, let me pray and then we will dive into content for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for the, the privilege that is ours to come together 
to sit under the teaching of your word, to fellowship together, uh, to worship you as a body um, who have been saved in Christ. Lord, every Sunday is such a thrill and a joy um, to my soul. It, it ought to be for all of us, and I pray that as we walk through some of these truths from your word this morning, that uh, though it may not be anything new to us, that it would yet be fresh and be helpful, and that it would shape our thinking about this uh, need that we have to uh, receive help from others and to give help to others. So be with us and give us wisdom and insight in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the, the big idea that we want to walk away from today's class with is that our need for help, okay, our need for help is not the result of the fall. It's the result of being human. Our need for help is not the result of the fall. It's, our, it's the result of being human. So we're going to walk through that principle today. On a personal level, that, that's a very general concept. On a personal level, you and I need help outside of ourselves in order to make sense of life. You and I don't have the uh, full ability to have the broadest perspective and be able to see things from God's perspective on our own. We need help outside of ourselves to make sense out of life. And then as a result of that, uh, you and I need to learn how to be instruments in God's hands to minister and help others and, and bring change into their lives as well. Well, we, we all need change, right? We, we know that. Uh, none of us came into this room thinking, hey, I've figured life out. I don't have any problems. And so I'm just here to help others get to where I've gotten. Uh, we, we all need change. And there are two primary instruments of change that the Lord uses. What, what, do, you, what do you think those are? We could say three. Well, I'll throw three because I'm sure someone's going to say this third one. What's that? The Bible. <laughs> the Bible? Who said the Bible? Very good. What's your name, sir? Richard. Richard. The Bible. The Word of God is one of God's primary means, uh, primary instruments, I should say, of change. What else? The Holy Spirit, that's the third one I thought someone might mention. Absolutely. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change, the divine agent who works change through His Word. All right, what's, what's a third instrument of change? The body of Christ. The body of Christ. Excellent. God works through the Holy Spirit and through the people of God to bring His Word to bear in the lives of people. Uh, if you have your Bible, go over to Isaiah chapter 55. We're going we're gonna to look at about mm, five passages today. Isaiah chapter 55. If this is not a familiar chapter to you, uh, it, it should be. It should become, I should say. There's two well-known aspects of it. Um, but the whole chapter is um, just beautiful. It starts by saying, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without price, uh, without money and without price. And then verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then you're familiar with verse 8. 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, heaven, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And just to, to put a comment on that, uh, when we think of verses 8 and 9, so often we think about, well, we don't understand what God is doing in my life. I, I, I don't understand why He's allowing the trials that He's allowing. But hey, His thoughts are, are higher than mine, His ways are higher than mine, so I'm just going to trust Him. That would be a theologically true thing to say. Uh, I I think we can easily support that from a variety of passages. But that's not what this passage is saying. The reason we have verses 8 and 9 in Isaiah 53 is because of the shock value that God would call the wicked to repentance and that God would actually forgive the wicked if he repents. When he extends the call of salvation and when he offers pardon, he's saying, here's why you can come to me, because I'm actually a God who forgives. I am a God who pardons, and and that's different than what you would do. If you knew the way in which people sin and you had the ability to forgive and pardon, you probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't, because we would be so full of justice and wanting retribution, that we wouldn't forgive the wicked and, and forgive those who are far from God. Uh, we, we would prefer justice over mercy. But God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He prefers mercy over justice. He offers forgiveness and prefers to forgive over exacting retribution. Well, that's, that has nothing to do with today's lesson, but uh, verse 10 Again, another familiar part of Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for uh, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. This is the Old Testament version of Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? Divides between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges between the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Isaiah 55.10-11, Hebrews 4.12 are saying that the Word of God is powerful, it's effective, it's useful, it accomplishes what God intends. The question is, all right, well, how does it get out. <laughs> uh, you know, how, how does it go from being words on a page or on a device to being uh, in, in the mind of others? Well, of course, there's personal reading of it, but if you lived at the time of Isaiah or if you lived in the first century, you wouldn't have your own personal copy of the scripture. What you would have would be the teaching that has come to you through priests, Levites, uh, pastors, uh, and then you would have the people of God who have also in their own lives received teaching and maybe even some of them having memorized and whatnot who can speak the word of God uh, to you in addition to what you already know. So the word of God is powerful. It is used by God to bring about change. But it has to come to us, and it comes to us through the people of God. And this becomes 
really the, the purpose of the church. Now go over to Ephesians chapter 4, another familiar passage. When you think about what is it that we're trying to accomplish as the church, why, why did God design the, the church, the body of Christ? Why, why did He not just save people and leave them randomly, individually on the earth to fulfill the, the purpose of evangelism? Uh, Ephesians 4 tells us why. Verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking of the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom, and this is so important, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if we're wanting to answer, how, does, how do we change? Well, a huge part of that is we change when the body of Christ, when each member of the body of Christ is functioning according to its gifts, according to its ability, according to the, the, the purpose for which Christ has given each member, and we're all functioning together, that's when we all grow. We grow individually and we grow corporately. Here the emphasis is on corporate growth, but you can't have corporate growth if you don't have individual growth. Right? There's no such thing as a body that somehow grows all together while all the individual parts stay you know, the same small size. That would be unimaginable. And so the purpose of our existence as a church, as a group of people who are sitting here and in the other classes, and then when we gather together uh, in the worship service all together as a local body, our purpose for existence is to each take the, the truth and the wisdom that God has given to us through our own life experience, our own salvation, our own engagement with the Word of God, the, the teaching that we've all received you know, from over the course of our Christian life, and then bring that all together so that as we engage with one another, as we, yes, have corporate worship and there's a primary preacher or music leaders or uh, whoever's up on the platform, but also then as we engage with one another in our conversations before and after church, as we gather in homes for our Bible studies, as women get together, as men get together, as we just have fun times together and celebrate Christmas together. In all the things that we do together, we bring all of our gifts, our abilities, our wisdom, the truth that the Lord has taught us. And when we speak to one another, we grow together in Christ. That's, that's the goal. That's the purpose, right? That doesn't always happen that way. But that's, that's what God has designed the church to be. Otherwise, why, why get together? Why come together? We, we could all be sleeping in on Sunday morning. We could, we could sleep in till 11 o'clock and then do three hours of evangelism you know, somewhere just by yourself or with a couple other people. 
God didn't leave you and I on the earth solely to do evangelism. Yes, evangelism is essential. That's why He doesn't take us from this earth. Evangelism is key. But also, He's organized us into the body of Christ so that we would minister to one another. Though that's the instrument of change, that, that God has created us as the body of Christ to take the Word of God and speak to one another uh, the truth in love. All right. I want to walk through three principles, all the way back to Genesis 1, that just help us think about this need that we all have. So that, that's the, we, we've just expressed the design of God uh, in terms of how He intends for us to change in terms of the instruments he, he designed for us. But I want you to think about this because as I said at the very beginning, our, the big idea is that our need for help is not the result of the fall, it's the result of being human. And that's really important for us to get into our minds because our tendency, because of the fact that we are sinful, is to think, well, the only reason I need help is because I'm a sinner and I need help with my sin. And we forget that, no, it's actually broader than that. We, we need help not just because of the fall, but because uh, we are human beings. L- look at chapter 1, verse 20, verses 26 to 28, and we'll just kind of think about the implications of what this is saying. Of course, God has created um, all things. This is the sixth day of creation. He's already, by this point, created uh, the animals. In verse 25 and 24, verse 26, he says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll go, I guess, through verse 30. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree that is... With, its, uh, with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and, and uh, every, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. All right, I want, I want to do a little observation, right? One of the key principles of interpreting Scripture is observation. Uh, just noting what is just there in the text. And this is not interpretation, This is just observation. I want you to think about Genesis chapter 1. I'm sure most of you have read or heard read Genesis chapter 1 dozens and dozens of times throughout your your life, if you've grown up in the church especially. Think about, um, because we're not reading the whole chapter, but just think about the flow of Genesis chapter 1, each day of creation, you know, where God would say, you know, let this be... Let there be light, let there be, 
you know, the lights in the heavens, let there be waters, let there be this and that. And then it would basically say, and, there, and it was so. God said, let there be, and it was so. What makes, so here's the observation, what makes verses 26 to 30, the creation of mankind, in terms of how God engages with his creation, what makes it different than everything else that God created? Okay, man made in his image. Yeah, that's, that would be, uh, that, that's a true uh, observation of the way in which God made man. But in terms of how God engages with what he creates, Brian? We have dominion. Okay. Okay. All right. That's that's the same idea. Let's see over here. Yep. I was going to say, God didn't just speak man into existence. Yeah. He actually, he formed man. Yep. Okay. He was involved. Yep. I was talking about the, the manner in which God created Colleen. He spoke to them. Okay. Did you hear that? Just look at your Bible. Just kind of look throughout the chapter. Who did, who did he speak to as he created one thing after another, after another, day after day? Who are all of the aspects or what are all of the creatures or objects of creation that he spoke to? None except? None except man. None, none except man. This tells us, again, just by plain observation... Something that's true about us, that when God created us, there's a whole lot we could say that, you know, we're made in the image of God, that we're made for dominion, uh, that we're formed, you know, physical, spiritual beings. There's a lot we could say about how God made us, his design for us. But one of the things that we see that's different between mankind and everything else in all creation is that we were made, we can put it this way, to receive revelation. We were made to receive information from outside of ourselves. God didn't speak to the animals. In fact, he told here Adam and Eve what he designed for the animals. He didn't tell the animals that. He told Adam and Eve that. But he spoke to Adam and Eve and thereby showing that they are receivers of revelation. As we move forward in uh, the the account, uh, not just with Adam and Eve, but as the Lord engages with Cain uh, and just as we move throughout Scripture, we see that as human beings, one of the fundamental realities that makes us different than everything else in creation is that we are receivers of revelation. We, we are receiving information from outside of ourselves. God did not make us, think about this, God did not make us to intrinsically know everything that we need to know. God did not make us uh, like the animals to be instinctual beings, that we just live based on instinct. Or, you know, I wouldn't understand the, uh, the scientific ways of, of talking about this, but uh, like animals who have the, the patterns in their lives, like bears who hibernate. Or how, you know, we saw when Rich and I were on the cruise and we had time to kill, we, we were watching a, a um, documentary, a nature documentary about a lion lioness who was taking care of her cubs and you know all that what it was involved with that you could say that's instinct i don't know if there's another word for that but there's patterns there's built in understanding that god created into the animal kingdom of just how they are to live how they are to propagate how they are to train their young how they are 
send their young off, all of that kind of stuff. God did not make you and I like that. He made us to receive from outside of ourselves revelation. So again, our need for help is not on the basis of the fall. It's because of the fact that we are human beings. Another aspect of of our being human beings is that unlike God, who is infinite and omniscient, we are finite. And so we don't see everything and we don't know everything. We, We see what we can see with our two eyes. We hear what we hear with our two ears. We feel what we feel with our physical senses. And that's the extent of our understanding of the world around us. There was a story many years ago of a child who was discovered that he was kept uh, in a, a box at home. Uh, you know, some, I don't remember the size of the box, but obviously sufficiently sized for him uh, to fit in, not sufficiently sized to live. But he was kept in a box. They obviously cleared child abuse. But for years of his life, he was kept in a box when he was at home and only let out to go to the bathroom and on certain occasions, but rarely. Imagine, if, if we can, what his perception of life and this world was like. You know, probably never saw a sunrise. Probably never saw a sunset. Uh, don't know that he had any friends that he ever played with. You know, from his perception, and this would be understandable, uh, uh, until the time it was discovered and and he was rescued from that, uh, his perception was probably, this is what it means to, to live. This is normal for, for a person. Well, his perception was wrong, right? Because it was so limited, he did not have the broader perspective. He was, by his parents, limited in the information that he had about this world. Well, that's tragic, and that's awful, But that's a picture, if you will, of our life. Where Okay, maybe our box is a little bit bigger, but we're still limited by our perception. We're limited by the things that we can see, the things that we can hear, the things that we can feel. And then, of course, as a result of seeing and hearing and feeling, uh, the things that we can learn uh, in this world. But it's all based on our perception. Many of you have come from other countries around the world or you have family members in other countries and, or you've traveled to other countries and you know that life, normal life, is radically different in other places. And so what to you and me seems like that is the weirdest thing, that would be an awful way to live, you know, whatever our interpretation of their experience is, for them, it's normal. And then for them, if they were to come to our home and see our daily life, they'd be like, wow, that's, that's awful. Like people don't just show up to your house every day and you have to feed them. And, uh, you know, showing hospitality, how many cultures are very hospitable. Uh, there's aspects of our culture, of our lives, that, are, that would be bizarre to people in other countries. Why? Because of our perception, our, our finiteness and our experience. And so the reason that that's important to remember is because as we both receive revelation truth from God, uh, as we get uh, information from outside of ourselves, uh, we don't respond to facts, we don't respond to bare facts, we respond to our interpretation of facts. 
we respond to our interpretation of facts. We, we see things and we make sense of them in light of what we already know, in light of our current experience. We, we hear things and we put them into a grid of our experience and our perceptions and our knowledge. And then we respond to situations, we respond to the actions of others, we respond to the, the world around us on the basis of how we are interpreting the world through the grid of our experience. That, that's our finiteness, and that's not the result of the fall, that's just the fact that we're finite. Okay, so we are made as revelation receivers, we're made as finite human beings, and then a third component of the way in which God made us is that we are worshipers. We are worshipers. We talked about this uh, some in the, in the last quarter. We won't spend as much time on it here. But the way that we interpret the facts of life, the, the experiences that we have, yes, it's based on our experience, but part of that is we interpret life around us on the basis of our answers to the big questions, if you will. Who is God? What, what's he like? Uh, who am I? What's the purpose for my life? Uh, what's the reason for existence? You know, those, those big questions of life. We, we look at circumstances. We hear what people say, what people do. And we respond to that based on our understanding of who God is and who we are. And what's the purpose of life? And you, one way to, to summarize that is worship. Are we going to view God as, I need to trust in what God says, I need to trust in the character of God and His purposes for my life, and I'm going to find my identity in Christ, and therefore I'm going to interpret everything in life, and I'm going to respond to the things in life in light, in light of what God has already revealed to me through His Word? Or am I going to think that I'm ultimately in control, that I'm ultimately responsible to control my life, that I need to protect myself, or that I need to... You know, pursue a, a, a certain kind of life, a life of wealth or a life of comfort or whatever kind of life we might prefer for ourselves. Uh, am I essentially worshiping myself? Am I worshiping the things of this world? Or am I worshiping God? So we respond to life on the basis of who we're worshiping, who we're living for. All right? So we are re receivers of revelation. We are interpreters of Revelation. And, and again, Revelation is not only Revelation from God, but information from outside of us. And we are worshipers. Let me just pause, lest I go the whole hour and not allow for any response. Any particular questions or thoughts? Is there anything that I can clarify? Yeah, Glennis. Well, that would be true, uh, but that's not necessarily the only aspect or even the primary aspect of being finite. Uh, I would say that the primary, yes, death is a result of the fall, but um, being finite is not the result of the fall. 
Okay. So let's think of just one. There's many different aspects of this, but one, uh, I think, somewhat obvious aspect that, that it makes it clear is that God is spirit. And because God is spirit, uh, a theological term is that he is immense, that he is transcendent, uh, and connected with transcendency is his imminency. And, and all, all of that means that because he's not bound by a corporal, corporeal, or however you say that, uh, existence, he doesn't have bodies, not made of matter, uh, his presence, his being is outside of creation and it permeates creation. He's infinite in that sense. Whereas we, we're made of stuff, <laughs> right? I can't be here and there at the same time. <laughs> Uh, and that's that's an aspect of my finiteness, uh, and and that's reflected from a, a, a cognitive level that you know we're again God is omniscient, we're not. We can only think of okay, I can only think of one thought at a time. I know women can think of like ten thoughts at a time, so women are less finite than men. But uh, you know, there's those kinds of things. So finiteness is just the limitations that we have. Okay, good. Any other particular comments or questions? Clarification? Would you? So our need is not from the fall, but from our being human. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, that our need of something is not always negative. That's an excellent point. Thank you for, for mentioning that. That's right. That because of the fact that our need is the result of being human, it's not bad that we have needs. God made us, uh, here, here's a word, God made us dependent beings, not independent beings. As much as we, we might think we're independent, you know, we, we might think, you know, maybe an entrepreneur might say, oh, I'm a self-built, you know, successful entrepreneur. Um, well, how many people did he depend on? <laughs> how many customers, for example, how many co-workers, how many manufacturers did he depend on in order to make himself successful, in order to become successful, I should say. Um, we, we are all dependent far more than we're usually willing to admit. Uh, and, and that's a good thing. That's God's design for us, because if we were independent, who would we not need? God. God made us to be dependent on him most of all, right? He, he designed our bodies such that you and I can't keep ourselves alive. And that was true, not just of us. That's true, not just of us uh, after the fall in terms of you know, sickness and, and we can't heal ourselves. That's also true of Adam and Eve before the fall. They had hearts just like you and I. Uh, and they were not in control of their heart beating. Yes, God created our bodies the, I don't know the right word for it, the automatic there's a word for that. Um, somebody know that? The automatic functions. Autonomous, is that it? Involuntary. Involuntary. Okay, the things that happen inside of our body that, that you and I are not, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. Okay, maybe we do that sometimes, right, when we're stressed. But, you know, you've been sitting here, and most of you have not been thinking about breathing and breathing out. You know, give me a shot about something, uh, an old blonde joke. But... Um, uh, our heartbeat. Yeah, your heart is beating, and you have nothing. You, you, that's not even something you can control. 
you can't tell your heart to beat faster. You know, there's a song. Um, I, I don't know all the lyrics, but just what I what what is so prominent in the song just drives me nuts. It, it's a Christian song on the radio, and it says, "Tell your heart to beat again." I don't know if it's referring to salvation or if it's referring to something other than salvation, but it, it comes across, at least that language to me comes across as, hey, you're dead in your sin, you need to tell your heart to beat again to you know, come alive in Christ. I, I don't know if that's what it's actually saying, but, but if that's what it's saying, that's theologically false. It's impossible. You can't tell your heart to, to beat again. You can't tell your heart to beat faster, to beat slower. Okay, maybe there's things you could do, a deep breathing exercise or something to slow down your heart rate. But you can't, you know, directly say, heart, stop it. <laughs> or not stop, but slow down. <laughs> um, so there, there's ways in which God designed us to be dependent on Him. Uh, and even though those things are automatic from our experience, they are all uh, intentionally upheld by God. Uh, not intentionally, purposefully, actively upheld by God. Matt? going to add an observation yeah. to, to go along with your point that uh, this is an example of that here where he's created all the food for them. Mm. So he tells them immediately, like, hey, by the way, yeah. you're going to be hungry in a bit. <laughs> <laughs> all this food, this is what you're supposed to be eating. Yeah, excellent point. That's a great observation. I mean, because who knows, if he didn't say that, what would they have done? You know, try, Let's try the bark. Let's see if that tastes any good. Uh, even, even more, just our dependence on each other. You know, instead in, in chapter 2, mm. you know, it is not good that man right. should be alone. Right. And, you know, that dependence would even form the relationship. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, excellent. So, so many different aspects of dependency, and, and they are good uh, because it um, infuses our life with meaning, significance, you know, like relationship. You know, you think about how God, the Lord said that. And, and that's not, um, yes, in that context, he was referring to Adam and he provided a wife, but you know, uh, someone who's not married is still uh, in relationship with other people to, to have companionship and love and affection and, uh, and all of the benefits that relationships bring, whatever the dynamics of those relationships, parent-child relationships, friendships, of course, marriage, and all of that. Uh, so dependency is is a good thing in so many cases, uh, if not in every case, because it re, it humbles us. All right, so I, I think we've solidified this idea that our need for help uh, is not based in the fall; it's based in creation. But we also see our need in light of the fall. So look over at chapter three, uh, verses one to seven. Um, yeah, let, let me go ahead and just read this. So, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat any of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the excuse me, tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that... When you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate the eyes of their eyes. Uh, the eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay. Again, just some observations. Genesis 1, Adam and Eve receive revelation from God. Revelation of their role to rule over the earth. Revelation of their food, of what they're supposed to eat. Uh, revelation to some degree of their relationship with the creation in terms of managing and and caring for creation, the work that they're uh, supposed to be doing, that they're to tend the garden. Here, they get another kind of revelation, if you will. Again, information from outside themselves. For the first time, they hear a competing voice. The serpent doesn't come along and provide um, unrelated information, facts about creation. Hey, Adam and Eve, did you happen to know, the, you know about this thing that's on the other side of the world? You know, things that are pointless and irrelevant. No, he, he came in and he brought a competing uh, interpretation to what they had been believing. So they received revelation from God, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. They interpreted that revelation. They understood God to be wise, God to be loving, God to be caring. They... Uh, celebrated that, they enjoyed that, they submitted to that. But now there's a competing interpretation where the serpent questions the character of God. He questions, you know, did, did God really say this in terms of the, the words themselves? And he works to change Eve's disposition, not just toward God, but also toward the fruit. And you see how that happens in verse 6, that now she looks at the fruit through a different grid. Before she saw the fruit as a danger. Don't touch that. Don't, don't, certainly don't eat it, but don't even touch it. Stay away from that. that. That is not good for me. Now, with this new grid, with this new perspective, based on the counsel that she's received from the serpent, she looks at the, at the fruit and she's like, ooh, Actually, that's a really nice sheen of green or purple or whatever it was. Ooh, that, that, that actually looks tasty. <laughs> and I don't know why she would think this, but now she's like, you know what? I think that actually would make me wise. That's the irrationality of sin that we draw conclusions that don't make sense. So she came to those conclusions because she had a competing revelation, if you will, like a competing Counsel, and then, of course, that led uh, to her actions. Not only did her interpretation change, but her worship changed. Think of it in those terms. Before she was worshiping God, she viewed God as the one who was worthy of trust and obedience. And now she views God as one who's not worthy of trust and obedience. And whether she shifted her worship to the serpent or just to herself, you know, sin doesn't care who you worship as long as it's not God. So uh, text doesn't tell us necessarily, you know, at that level what was going on in her mind. But ultimately she rejected God as the one who's worthy of worship. And she transferred her worship to something other than God. This situation 
tells us that not only in this moment between Eve and the serpent, but in all of our lives, the the thoughts that we have, the the talk that we engage in, the opinions that we share with one another, the, the counsel that we give, the advice, all of it has an agenda, whether you realize it or not. When you share your opinion with somebody else, or somebody else shares their thoughts, their advice, or counsel with you, what we're implicitly doing, again, whether we're thinking of it or not, what we're implicitly doing is we're trying to draw others to our perspective. We're trying to help people see the way we see things, and you know, hopefully they'll see, see, see things the same way, and then take action in light of that. So when someone calls and they, you know, a, a friend, a, a dear friend calls and they say, have some kind of trouble that they convey to you that they're experiencing, uh, what you're saying, whatever you say in response to try and help them, comfort them, encourage them, whatever it is, it, it will have the effect of giving them a different perspective than what they've had. You know, in the best situation, uh, this happens sometimes with us, in the best situation, somebody says, I know the truth, I just need to hear it from somebody else, right? And they're talking, they, they really do know what God would have them to think, they just want somebody else to reflect that. That's like the best, most ideal situation. Maybe the, the second best situation is, help me out, help me to see what I'm not seeing. And then you speak the truth of God, and they embrace that, they're comforted by that, they're encouraged, and they know what to do now as a result. Th- those are good ways in which we bring people to our perspective, which hopefully grounded in God's word, and that's a benefit. That's, that's the way God designed us to help one another. But how often, and this is just a question, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not accusing, but how often do we say something and we have no idea if it's grounded in God's word? It's just our opinion. It's just how we think life should be. Um, you know, in, in the course of counseling people over the years, I'll uh, ask people what you know. What is your spouse saying? Ask uh, somebody this this week, a, a husband who is struggling with something, and and uh, you know he's recognizing he's wanting to grow. And I and I said, well, what does your wife tell you? Well, praise the Lord, she's giving him great counsel. Sometimes I ask people a similar question: What are your friends telling you? Or they just come out and tell me what their friends are telling them. I'm like, don't don't think that, <laughs> don't believe that. That's not biblical. Um. So sometimes we, we say things because that's just our opinion, that's our perception. You know, we speak out of our experience, and it's not at all grounded in God, God's Word. And, and what we're doing is we're reshaping somebody's perspective on life based on what we say. And look at the consequence that this had. Verse 7, the eyes of both were opened, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths, and of course we know what happens in the rest of chapter 3. Lord comes, and humanity is cast into a state of death. Right? Now, the bad counsel that you and I might give may not have that same level of impact in a person's life, but we can have massive impact. Our Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. What we say will have some kind of impact. It can, it can strengthen, it can confirm someone in the truth, it can move them into a, a, a position of being in the truth and thinking rightly. 
And that's life-giving, that's strengthening, that's, that's helping them move forward in honoring the Lord in their life and doing what's right before Him. Or we can speak words into someone's life that are destructive, uh, whether it's destructive to them personally in terms of tearing them down or destructive in the sense that they embrace bad counsel, they take action according to that, that bad counsel, and then it has destructive effects in their life. You know, in the case of um, sin, when people sin against one another, sometimes our counsel is, well, you just need to get rid of that person in your life. You need to cut them out of your life and, and, and you know, not, not put up with that. Well, that can be destructive because it can cut off a relationship that God intends for our good. You know, you just think about the destruction that happens in families. And, of course, there are situations where God uh, mercifully allows uh, a breaking up of a family because of the, the impact of sin. But, but many times marriages are destroyed because of bad counsel and it has ripple effects beyond what we can really understand. So our words can give life. Our words can bring death. That's what happened here with the serpent. And that can happen in, in our own counsel as well. Any particular thoughts or comments? Ron? Uh, we're uh, instructed not to uh, cause another fellow believer to stumble, so maybe we should think a little bit more soberly and sincerely when fellow believers come to us for counsel. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, we need to be very careful. That, and that shouldn't, that soberness shouldn't necessarily translate to saying nothing. Um, it shouldn't translate to that. It, it should just cause us to be thoughtful and even to say, you know what, I'm not sure what's the right thing to say. I, I need, I, you know, I need to consider this further and pray about this before I get back to you. But yes, yeah, soberness for sure is critical. Alright, last last passage for today. The scary thing about life and being finite is that we are, can often be blind to our, our own perceptions. We can think that we see things rightly but be blind in the very same moment. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. Uh, we've seen our need for help in creation, our need for help in the fall, the significance of the counsel that we give. Here we see our need for help in redemption. So once a person comes to Christ, when, once you believe in Christ and have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, once you have a copy of the Scriptures in your hands, that doesn't all of a sudden remove the need for help outside yourself in your life. It rather provides a great context for receiving the, the right kind of help. Uh, listen to this. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I don't know if you can think in your own life about times when 
you've been self-deceived, and in some point in time the Lord has opened your eyes to the reality of, of your sin. But all of us are capable of self-deception. Again, because of our finiteness, we see things so myopically, we can get so focused and go down the path of thinking things a certain way, and then we just, you know, we, we color the whole world, we, we view the world through colored lenses, that now everything looks a certain way because of the path we've gone down, and, and don't realize that we're looking at everything completely wrong. He, he describes kind of a, a four-step uh, four downward cycle, if you will. In verse 12, he says, Lest there be in any of you an evil, or you could say sinful, heart. That is, a, a heart that is given over to sin, and that can be in subtle ways, ways that you, know, you and I might say, oh, that's... Yeah, that's, that's something wrong in my life, but it's not you know, a big, life-dominating sin. Or it could be something that's life-dominating, significant, destructive. But uh, an evil heart, a sinful heart, is a heart that's given over to, to sin. And then, very closely related to that, is an unbelieving heart. A, a sinful heart can say, I know the truth, but I'm just not going to abide by it. You know, I, I, I want my pleasure, I want my comfort, I want stuff, you know, whatever it is that I want. I know the truth, I believe the truth, but I, I just, I have these sinful desires that I'm going to seek to satisfy. The unbelieving heart is even worse because it rejects even more of God's revelation. It, it denies what God says. Now, certainly the sinful heart does, but this goes even further to say, I know that God says that, but I just don't believe that anymore. And I, I don't want that. I don't want what God wants for me because, because it's, uh, I don't think that would actually be good for me. And that leads to falling away. Uh, your translation might say turning away. And uh, one way to, to put that is kind of a, a loss of your spiritual moorings. That were at one point in your life, you were grounded in the Word of God. You knew what was true. You, you valued the things that God's Word tells you to value. But now, because you've cultivated sin in your life, you've, you've cultivated a, an unbelieving heart where you reject what God's Word says is good and right and true. Now you, you completely turn away and you walk away and you live a lifestyle of sin. And then the final step of that, at the end of verse 13 is that one is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That now your heart is calloused. It's insensitive to the truth, such that when someone brings the truth to you, you don't want to hear it. You almost are in that position of the unbeliever, of hating the truth, being unwilling to listen to the truth. We are all capable of this process, even as believers. And the solution to avoiding this entire situation is verse 13. Exhort one another daily. Because we can get so blind and so self-focused, we need others to speak into our lives to say, hey, brother, sister, what are you doing? <laughs> You're talking about this thing in your life as if it's not a big deal. This is a big deal. This is not right for you as a believer. 
Or, hey, I haven't seen you at, at church or Bible study, or I haven't seen you around the, the, the saints. I haven't seen you fellowshipping. Where you been? What, what's going on? Uh, we, we need each other to call each other back from our tendency, our temptations to wander away. Uh, God can do that on his own for sure. He can, you know, we can pop on the radio while we're driving and in God's providence there can be a sermon that is playing in that moment and it just speaks directly to our lives and the Lord works in, in our heart through his word in that way. Uh, or a song can come on that challenges us and reminds us of the, the beauty and the glory of Christ and he can convict us of our sin. You know, there's all kinds of ways that God can work in our life. But the way that God has particularly designed to work in our life, to keep us away from sin, to keep us grounded in the truth of Christ, is for us to speak the truth in love to one another. For each of us to exhort each other. Not for the pastor to exhort every individual, not for the Bible study leaders or men's or women's teachers to be exhorting, but for all of us in our relationships to be exhorting one another. This, this is the design that, that God has put in us. And so when a person does veer off of God's purposes and they, they go down that path of sin, there's two possible explanations and it's probably both are involved. One is they didn't seek counsel, they didn't seek advice, they didn't seek help from those who would have otherwise given it. That's incredibly common. And then second, no one was proactive enough to speak into their life. The reason we sometimes don't seek counsel is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what people would think if they knew what we were struggling with. They would, we're afraid that people would reject us if they knew what we've done in the past. I was recently talking to someone who had experienced uh, very early in his life uh, sexual abuse as a child. And he said, I've only told this to somebody outside of our church, so don't think of anybody in our church. But uh, he said, I've only told this to you and to this one other person in my life. And I, I spent a while encouraging him and, yeah, just encouraging him to consider, you know, by God's grace, he's been healed from that. He's, he's grown in his understanding. It, it, the Lord has used it to draw him closer to himself. And so there's, there's growth there. And so because of all of that, I, you know, uh, that wouldn't normally be the first, this wouldn't normally be the first place that I go. But because all of that has already happened in his life, I reminded him of 2 Corinthians 1.3, that the comfort with which we have been comforted we can use to comfort others in their afflictions. And that as much as an experience like that is difficult and painful, uh, the Lord can use that in our life to be a blessing to others. Or another common uh, sin, and that, that's not a sin, that's a suffering experience. On the sin side, that's very common in the church at large, and this would include Hope Bible Church, is abortion. Women who've aborted a baby are incredibly afraid that anybody might find out. Whether they did that, made that choice as an unbeliever, or even at a moment in their life where they professed Christ, but they made that choice. They don't want anybody to know that they had an abortion because they're afraid. What will people say? They will reject me. They won't let me be part of this fellowship. They, they won't want to be my friend if they know that I've made that decision in my past. Fear is a huge reason 
that we don't seek help from one another. Uh, fear is a huge reason that if we do seek help, often we'll go outside of our relationships. We'll seek a professional or someone who doesn't, uh, you know, who's going to keep everything confidential and who's, who's not going to, uh, whose, whose relationship with us is not based on anything other than us seeking help from them. Because they're not going to reject us. I'm gonna, after all, I'm paying them to, to talk to me about this. So fear keeps us from being open with those that God has put in our lives to love us and care for us and minister to us. And if we seek help, maybe it'll be from somebody outside who is not threatening to us. That's awful. That is a sad state of the church. The very place where God has brought grace and redemption and mercy that we're all sitting here, if you're all believers in Christ, we're all sitting here because we've already acknowledged to God and hopefully to others that we're sinners and we needed Christ to forgive us and redeem us. We are often so afraid to let our sin be known in its specifics because we think that maybe we'll be judged and others won't accept us. It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. We should so love one another coming back to the love thing, that the air that we breathe in the context of our fellowship with one another is grace and compassion and comfort and mercy and, and uh, ministry to one another. So that when someone says, hey, I just, I'm really struggling with this, either a present sin or guilt over a past sin, but they know because of the character of our local body. They know they can do that and, they're, and they won't be judged. They know they can do that and they'll receive help and ministry. Wouldn't that be the kind of church that we would want to be a part of? On the flip side, uh, we also need to be the kind of church where we love one another enough to speak the truth to each other where not only does someone come to us and they're willing to open themselves up to us, but uh, we, have, um, we have grown to the point where we are able to minister to them. Well, we're not just giving them our opinion, but we're seeking to minister the truth of God to them. We may not have the answers to every question. We may not always know the right thing to say, but we want to reach out and we want to be involved in that person's life because... We want to take the comfort we have received in Christ and minister to others. But so often we, we don't do that. We know about the problems in people's lives or we see patterns of sin in someone's life and, well, I don't want to get involved with that. That's too messy. Again, that's awful. It doesn't mean that we have to, you know, we're not the Savior. We're, we're not to jump into everybody's life and, and solve all their problems. That, that's not the, the right uh, contrast, but if we're holding back from relationships because we don't want to know what's going on in people's lives, or we know what's going on and we don't want to have any involvement in that, we don't want to get their sin, you know, stained on us, or we don't want the complexity, we don't want the stress, whatever. That's that's not the loving attitude of Christ, is it? So in, in, from both of those perspectives, from the person who's suffering or struggling with sin and from the person who has the opportunity to give counsel, we, we all need to grow in opening up our lives 
in appropriate ways, you know, within the context of loving relationship, so that we receive help from outside of ourselves because we desperately need it. And we also need to grow in being willing, desiring, and open to ministering to others and speaking the truth in love. We have about one minute. Any particular thoughts or comments at this point? Can I set the record straight on Tell Your Heart to Beat Again by Danny Gokey? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's not about salvation. Okay. It's a song about suffering. Okay. And it's meant to be a, making a choice to turn back to the Lord mentally, to trust Him with the things that go on. Okay. Um, that everything's working for your good. Live in grace. Okay. Appreciate it's that. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm sorry for offending you. <laughs> but I'm, I'm really grateful for that uh, understanding of the fuller lyrics. So, scrub the record. It's a great song if you're listening to the recording. Good, thank you. Anything else? All right. Uh, yes? Yes, I can. Again, I'll, I'll do that here. I'll, I'll pray. Um, if you didn't sign in, make sure you sign in. Uh, and we'll be sending out, as needed, uh, an email with any information or anything that I might encourage you to be doing between class sessions. So I will write it on the board, but I'll also ask Amy to send it out uh, in an email with the links. But I'll, I'll put it on the board here for sure. Okay, let me pray.